above all. Last week, one of you, I had to start with this because one of you came to me after service and had a great question. And I don't know how you define a great question, but I would say minimally it's something that, that A, is not easy to answer, and B, I think a great question is one that makes you think. And so you came to me with a great question. You were paying attention. And as we were in John chapter 5, and we walked with Jesus into the colonnades around the pool of Bethesda, and Jesus healed this lame man, you noticed that John provided more detail that there were lots of people. And in fact, John talks about several of the illnesses or the kinds of illnesses that were there around the pool. And you said, Gordon, but he only healed this one guy. In fact, very quiet miracle. The man didn't realize when it happened even who Jesus was. Didn't even know his name. And you said, why didn't Jesus heal everyone? Why did Jesus only heal this one individual? And that is a great question. Jesus knew that every time he healed a disease, it was a temporary fix. Jesus understood better than anyone that the one terminal disease, the one sickness that humanity suffers with that truly has everlasting consequences, the most serious illness we face, is that of sin. And Jesus alone understood that his blood is the only antidote to the poison of sin. That his death, burial, and resurrection are our only hope. Okay. But still, he could have healed everyone around the pool of Bethesda. There, if he had done that, there would have been less pain. There would have been less suffering. There would have been more joy in the world. Wouldn't that be a good thing? If it were only that simple, Jesus saw firsthand, and we're getting glimpses of this as we walk through the Gospel of John, but Jesus saw and noticed how those miracles became a distraction for people. He noticed how attention was taking off, ta- taken off the antidote, was taken off the message, and was placed on the miracles. In essence, a good thing, a healing, became a substitute for the best thing, the preaching of the gospel. And these miraculous works of Jesus very often caused people, another thing, caused people to have expectations that were not consistent with his identity and his mission. When people saw the power that this man had, they brought their own agendas. What if Jesus could help me out with this? What if Jesus could help Israel out with this? And their expectations were placed on Jesus, and he was not free at that point then to bring them into his expectations, into his kingdom. And remember, we saw this week one. John prefers the word sign to the word miracle. And we are reminded from John that miracles were designed to point somewhere, to take us to a better destination than this place, 
to take us to the kingdom. Jesus, after all, was primarily concerned, primarily concerned with getting us right with God. Primarily concerned with our sin problem. Primarily concerned with getting us to heaven. And sometimes, if you pay attention to the miracles, sometimes they got people sidetracked. And you may be thinking, okay, all of that makes sense, all of that is good, but still, why heal the one guy when there were all of these people that were suffering? And whether we like the answers or not, and whatever our thinking on this, we do know Jesus left a whole lot of people by the pool of Bethesda not healed. And while Jesus today in John 6 is going to feed thousands, Jesus in his life and ministry did not solve the problem of world hunger. And we experience this in our own prayer lives. I mean, you've you've recognized this. Sometimes you pray for something, it's specific, it's important to you, and God delivers. Sometimes God says, no. Or sometimes God says, not now. And so we experience that in in our own lives, and that's why we walk by faith and not by sight. We trust in His wisdom. We trust in His love, and ultimately, we trust in His plan. That's what walking by faith means. And so John chapter 6, this is our text this morning. This is... um, One of the places we're going to find Jesus with an ever-expanding fan base. And when you think about celebrities today, that is one of the big objectives, right? How can I grow my fan base? Jesus wasn't like celebrities today. He wasn't interested in a fan base. He was interested in calling followers out, He was interested not in the crowds, but he was interested in in the committed. And so we're going to do something a little different today. Usually you don't want to start with the end of the story, but I want to start with the end of the story today because you come into John chapter 6, there are multitudes of people around Jesus. They can't wait to see what he's going to do next. And by the end of John chapter 6, the crowds have abandoned Jesus. They've deserted him. Because they were trying to make him king, right? Do you remember this in the story? He, he feeds the masses. And, and John tells us they were trying to make him king by force. They were trying to bring their agenda. They were trying to put their expectations on Jesus. They were printing up Jesus for president bumper stickers, getting the t-shirts ready for his campaign. He was going to overthrow Rome. He was going to set them free. And that was not... That was not his agenda. And so by the end of John chapter 6, listen to these words from the message, chilling words. Starting in verse 66, after this, a lot of disciples left. They no longer wanted to be associated with him. Then Jesus gave the twelve their chance. Do you also want to leave? Peter replied to Master, to whom would we go? You have the words of real life, eternal life. We've already committed 
ourselves confident that you are the Holy One of God. So let's talk about this dichotomy between the crowds and the committed as we look at John chapter 6 very quickly. The crowds come to Jesus with some very specific questions like, how or, or what, rather, can I get from Jesus? This is on your outline. What can I get from Jesus? Let me come to Jesus with my list, and it may be some important stuff to me. It may be some good stuff, but what can, I, what can you do here for me, Jesus? The committed, they're asking something different. They're saying, what can I offer to Jesus? What can I bring to the Savior? The crowds want to know this. How can I use Jesus? The committed want to know this. How can he use me? Right? That's a disciple-lord relationship. How can he use me? Let's pray, if you would, join me. Lord Jesus, line us up this morning with your heart and your dreams, and specifically with your plans for your church here at Preston Crest and for our lives. Show us how you plan to use us. We want to know you today, and we want to know what we can offer you. In your name, amen. So Jesus is on the far side of the Sea of Galilee. Crowds who have been, well, we're going to see, they're gathering to follow Jesus. Everywhere he goes, there's this group. Now, John wants us to know, to be clear about specifically why they are following Jesus. Do they love Jesus? Do they want to lay down their lives for Jesus? Are they wanting to sign up for this committed life of discipleship? Verse 2. A great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs. They saw the miraculous signs he performed on the sick. Makes sense, right? They saw, they were amazed they wanted more. What comes next? And then the people got hungry. That's what we do. We get hungry if we haven't eaten. Very basic thing. And so their hunger, of course, was a little different from our hunger. I bet most of us have food in our freezer or in our refrigerator or in our overstuffed pantry that we're going to have to end up throwing out. We're, we're not going to get to that Greek yogurt before it goes bad. We're, we're not going to drink all of that milk before it gets a little, you know. So we end up actually throwing out food often. In fact, in Dallas every day, between the restaurants and the grocery stores, literally tons of food are put in the garbage. We have a surplus of food around here. Life was very different from these mostly peasants who are gathered around Jesus. Starvation was a real possibility for many of these people. They weren't sure where their meal was going to come from tomorrow, and certainly not, certainly not in a week or so. And so Jesus, seeing these crowds, almost imagine like an amphitheater just covering this hillside. Jesus, seeing these crowds, turns to Philip 
and he asks this question. Hey, Philip, where are we going to buy food for all of these people? I mean, they are out in the middle of nowhere. There are thousands of people. Um, Where are we going to get something for these folks to eat? And Philip is like, I have no idea. He says it would take uh, eight months of wages, and even then, I don't think we would have, have enough money to buy food. for. I mean, it would take a fortune to feed these people. Andrew overhears this and chimes in. Well, there's this little boy here. He's got five barley loaves. He's got two fish. It's obviously not going to feed all of these people, but I, I mean, I guess it's a start. And Jesus winks. That's not in the text, by the way, but I'm pretty sure he did. I think he looks at Andrew, I think he winks, and he says, Hand me those loaves of bread. Hand me those fish. Organize everybody. Get people seated in groups so we can kind of make sense out of this. People are just kind of milling. Get everybody situated here. And then Jesus offers thanks for this kid's snack. And then Jesus begins to hand it to the twelve. And they go out and they begin to distribute this boy's snack to the crowd. Dinner was served. Every person eats. Every person has bread and fish. Every person's stomach is filled. And at the end, Jesus says, okay, guys, twelve, I want you to go back out and collect the leftovers. Leftovers, you ask? Yes. Basketfuls of leftovers. At the end of this story, you got Peter holding a bread basket full of leftovers. You got Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Judas, all of them are holding basketfuls of leftovers. John says there were 12 basketfuls of leftovers after this meal was served. Now, you've probably ordered too much at a restaurant before, but I doubt if you've taken home 12 take-home boxes. I mean, this is a lot of excess food, surplus food in a world where there just wasn't surplus food, which gets us a long way into understanding exactly why not only were their stomachs filled, but their minds were blown. The pe- this is what causes him to want to put a crown on his head and make him king. This is the miracle that convinces them Jesus is the one. The one that can help us with our expectations and with our agendas. Now, Jesus, I, I don't know. I mean, did he, did he need... Philip's help? Did he really need Philip? Did he need the little boy's lunch? No, no. Could Jesus have fed these crowds on his own without the help of the little boy or his apostles? Uh, yeah. But there's something here, isn't there, that Jesus chooses to work with people. Jesus chooses to partner up with us. Jesus chooses to go with, with you out into the world. He chooses not to work alone. And so a few things as we work through the text about about walking with Jesus in this partnership. The first would be I need to learn to see as Jesus sees. Last week, Jesus saw 
a need, and he met a need. This week he sees the multitudes. We have in the text, verse 5, he saw, he, he sees people, he sees their needs. And I'll, I'll tell you, it's, it's not a convenient thing, just being honest, to see what Jesus sees. I mean, it can really wreck your day. When you begin to see what Jesus sees, to see those needs, pity is comfortable. Pity sees a beggar and flips a coin and says, God bless. Compassion moves into relationship. Compassion sees them as a friend, sees them as a neighbor. That's how Jesus treats people. So I see as Jesus sees, and as a disciple, I want to feel what Jesus feels, right? I mean, we have this in the text, verse 5. Jesus turns to Philip and he says, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? In other words, Philip, this isn't just my problem. This isn't just my burden. It's ours together. He invites, he invites Philip to feel what he feels. And I think, I just got this idea, the apostles are following Jesus around. It must have been fairly chaotic with all of the crowds and all this stuff. But Jesus is handling everything. There is no disease. There is no person possessed by a demon. There is nothing too big that Jesus cannot handle. And so they've just kind of, the apostles kind of moved back on cruise control. Jesus has got this. And then Jesus turns around and puts it on Philip. Hey, Philip, where are we going to get the food? What are we going to do about this? Help me out on this, Philip. You're my partner. And so he wants his disciples to see and feel the needs of people and to understand that we are supposed to be part of the solution. And I love this next one. This is where the rubber meets the road. Here's what we do. I will combine... I will combine what I have with what Jesus has. There was a boy with five small barley loaves and, five, and two small fish, but how will they go so far among so many? Remember, we've got 5,000 adult men. That's how they kept count in those days. So maybe 10,000 total. We don't know exactly. Lots of people, about as many as who probably lived in my hometown growing up. And I love the NIV translation here. I'm not going to say it's the best translation of this text, but I love it. <laughs> because it has John saying that there were five small barley loaves and two small fish. As if that's the problem, right? I mean, if we had five medium-sized barley loaves, I mean, if we had a couple of, you know, eight-pound fish instead of two, we'd be set. The problem is how small these fish and low... No, obviously not. The principle is this. The Lord wants you to contribute what you have. Then He will contribute what He has. Um, and we so often dwell on what we do not have. There is this big ministry need, or there is this big need in my neighborhood with these folks over here, or there's this big need at, this, at, this, at the elementary school down the street, or there's this, and I don't have enough money. It'd just be a drop in the bucket. Or I don't 
have enough free time or I don't have enough training or I don't have enough Bible knowledge or I don't have enough, you fill in the blank. We, we love to talk to Jesus about all the things we don't have. You know what? I've read through the New Testament a bunch of times and I never find Jesus asking you to give him an inventory of what you don't have. Right? Jesus is interested in finding out what you do have, what you will provide. He says, give me what you've got, and I'll chip in what I've got. Do something good with what I provided you, and then watch what I'll do. I'll take it from there. He says, bring what you have to the table. I'll bring what I have to the table. And being his disciple means using what I have. Small or much, bringing that to the table and trusting Jesus in this partnership of disciple and Lord. And finally, I leave the results up to Jesus. I think churches worry way too much about results. Disciples leave the results up to the Lord. I'm not going to read all of that. You know how the story turns out. The results are, let's say, disproportionate, wildly disproportionate to the investment that was made. Five loaves, two fish, and then the results are 12 basketfuls of leftovers and thousands of people ready to take a nap because they've just stuffed themselves. Those are some crazy results. All because they were willing to bring what they had or, or what this little boy had and offer it to Jesus. And when we bring our much or our little to the Lord, He begins working with us. His Spirit begins working in us. And His blessing begins to channel through us. One thing, this is really where I want to end right here with an idea. Don't sell yourself short. And I hope you'll let me explain that a little bit. I think we sell ourselves short all the time. I think people underestimate what they have to offer. Um, And I would say this to you. Your life and what you have to offer has incredible potential if you will put that in the hands of Jesus. Amen? If you take what you have, don't underestimate yourself, you take that and you put that in the hands of Jesus, unbelievable things will begin to happen. And so I want to finish this morning with a poem that I heard George Bailey share on more than one occasion. Many of you don't know him, but he was the first preacher of this church, passed away a year ago, preached here for a long time, was an elder here for a long time, and just generally an awesome member of this church for a long time, he and Elabeth. But this was his favorite poem. It's by Myra Brooks Welch, and it's called Touch of the Master's Hand. "'Twas battered and scarred, And the auctioneer thought it hardly worth his while to waste his time on the old violin. But he held it up with a smile. 
What am I bid, good people, he cried. Who starts the bidding for me? One dollar, one dollar. Do I hear two? Two dollars. Who makes it three? Three dollars once. Three dollars twice. Going for three. But no. From the room far back, a gray-bearded man came forward and picked up the bow, then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the strings, he played a melody, pure and sweet, as sweet as the angels sing. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, What now? Am I bid for this old violin? As he held it aloft with its bow, one thousand, one thousand, do I hear two, two thousand, who makes it three, three thousand once, three thousand twice, going and gone, said he. The audience cheered, but some of them cried, we don't understand what changed its worth. Swift came the reply. The touch of the master's hand. With many a man with life out of tune, all battered and bruised with hardship, is auctioned cheap to a thoughtless crowd, much like that old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He is going once, he is going twice, he is going and almost gone. But the master comes, and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. This morning, I want to ask you, if you have not put your life in the hands of the master, if you have not offered yourself up to Jesus... You've got an opportunity to do that this morning, to be buried with Jesus in baptism, to proclaim your faith in Jesus, to begin walking as his follower, as his disciple, seeking his will, his agenda for your life. Maybe this morning you just need to to invite his help with a situation or a problem. He sees, he feels, he hears our prayers You can circle up with somebody this morning or come pray with me or one of our shepherds. But whatever you need to do with the master this morning, we would pray and ask that you do that right now as we stand together.